Good morning again, friends. My name is Evan Skelton. I'm the pastor here at Bayless Baptist. If this is your first time joining us, if you're just now logging on, so glad that you're joining us this morning. And I've actually been away for a few weeks. I, uh, I can't tell you how good it is to be back. I, uh, as many of you know, I've been taking a few weeks off from preaching um, in order to be with my family as we've just celebrated the birth of a new baby daughter. Uh, I cannot wait for you to meet Lucy in person. She is sweet and keeping her mom and I very tired, but praise God, everybody's very healthy. Um, but I want to just say a word of thanks uh, to many who have made this possible while I was away, including our team here at Bayless, but also a special thanks to Taylor and to Larry and to Jim and to Sam, uh, good friends of mine who have you, you have not only cared for me well in the past, you cared for our church and my family by glorifying Jesus' name in the preaching of his word. And you bound our church together under that word in the Gospel of Mark in a way that, honestly, I was just, I could have very comfortably sit on, sat under your preaching for uh, the next few months. Um, but since this is what I am paid for, uh, let's get back to it. I am so glad to be with you today, and I hope you will be keeping your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39, which were just read for us. But before we go to our passage, um, I am reminded of a conversation that I had um, a while ago um, with a man who was relatively new to the church, um, to the church that I was pastoring, and as, oft, as I often do, I sat down with him to get to know a little bit more of his story about why he, was, uh, why he had come to our church in particular. And like some of you here, he stepping in, into a church was a long time coming. He actually had never grown up in a church. Being a part of a church was not really a part of his life. In fact, he had never really, at least previously, given the Bible or God the time of day. And so it was surprised to me that he, um, without invitation, found our church and showed up on a Sunday. But it turns out a serious car accident and a series of health issues, actually, that came after this led him into our doors, including chronic pain and a severe, crippling kind of pain. It made, him, it made it difficult for him even to stand or for long periods of time, let alone walk from his vehicle. This is what caused him to consider Christianity, actually, for the very first time. And as exciting as this was, I came to find out how he learned about Christianity was through some self-professed uh, television evangelists. And I say self-professed because even while there is certainly some good teaching out there, I'm not convinced that the majority of these so-called evangelists are actually true evangelists. That is, it is not really the gospel of Jesus that they are preaching, but an alternative one. A gospel that looks like the real thing, but only in the sense that carbon monoxide looks like oxygen. One gospel saves and one gospel destroys. And this alternative gospel is no gospel at all. And so as much as I was excited about my friend's newfound spiritual interest, I have to say the warning bells were already going off for me. I, I feared, and it was confirmed, that my friend had been driven to the church under false pretenses. I'll tell you a little bit more of what I mean. You see, under the influence of these false teachers, even in our first initial meetings, he came to confess that he was convinced that if he could just get his spiritual life straight, he, 
if he could just prove to God how serious he was about his newfound faith, God would finally heal him. In other words, if he scratched God's back, maybe God would scratch his. The thing is, my friend isn't so unique. Many of us, friends, have come to God, I fear. We may have even been following God for 50 years, but it is not God that we are supremely interested in. Our deepest desire, it turns out, is not for God, but for something else. It doesn't have to be even something that's blatantly uh, evil on its face. It may be something even very good. It could be the desire for relief from suffering. It could be a desire for a bit more safety and security in life, for success in your career, for a stable family, for a sense of belonging, for the cancer to just go away, for a spouse. But in our passage today, it seems that none of these desires, which are for good things, lead to a thriving, intimate relationship with Jesus. If what draws us to God, friends, is not a desire for God himself. We will find in the end that our faith is no faith at all. But I'm getting way ahead of myself, obviously. We need to see if God's word confirms this. And I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we walk through our passage in two stages. We're going to look at Jesus the healer and Jesus the preacher. Are you ready? Let's look at the first of these, Jesus the healer, in verses 29 through 34. And Now, as a reminder, Jesus has just come onto the scene in, in John Mark's gospel as a public figure, around 30 to 33 years old. Um, prior to this, other than family and friends, you see, no one actually knew Jesus. That might catch some of us by surprise. Jesus wasn't gaining a following. He wasn't a trending topic. No one knew him. And even those closest to him were now seeing and hearing things from Jesus that no one had ever seen or heard before. And this ministry of Jesus become, begins with a crucial announcement with Jesus himself. And I want to read this in verses one, chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to come back to this verse um, again and again and again. It's perhaps one of the key verses in Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want you to log that verse away for a second. We're going to come back to it, but it's an enormously important for us to understand anything else that comes, especially the events that happened after this in our passage. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's not this announcement that forces Jesus into the headlines, of course. It's not after making this announcement that people start listening to him and following him. Rather, it's it's actually events like the one that Sam preached on last week in which Jesus, in full view of the town leaders, he pulls a demon out of the village crazy person. It's, it's not a, I mean, don't think a flannel graph picture of this will do. It's actually a, a terrifying picture the more you hear about it. It's, and the image is of a man on the ground screaming and convulsing as a demon is ripped from his body not by some voodoo or magic ritual, simply by Jesus standing over him and speaking. This is, a, I realize, an event that causes many modern people like us to roll our eyes. But it isn't actually an everyday occurrence for 
those in the first century either. It leaves the town leaders dumbfounded. They start saying to one another, here is someone who doesn't just have a new teaching, but has authority. And while this isn't Jesus' first miracle, this seems to be perhaps the most public miracle thus far. After, after all, it's in front of the town leaders, and this begins to set off something of a chain reaction all throughout Capernaum. But more in, on this in a second. We'll get there. You see, the, the day goes on from here. We're actually hearing about a 24-hour about a period, a little bit more than that. As it gets more eventful, as the word, as a, as word reaches Jesus, as he's leaving the synagogue, it seems, about one of his disciples, one of the disciples he just called, and one of the most famous disciples, Peter, um, who here is called Simon, um, whose who's, uh, who's recollections of Jesus' life and teaching, they, found, they, they are the foundation of this book. It's his eyewitness testimony that John Mark is writing down. And it's why it's so vivid, perhaps, in this passage. More specifically, uh, Jesus learns that uh, Peter's mother-in-law, who seems to have been living with them at the time, has become deathly ill. Whether the fever has come on suddenly or perhaps the fever's been just taking a turn for the worse, regardless, the point is, is things are desperate and Jesus needs to come now if he's going to help. And again, without incantation or magic potion, which have been fairly common even amongst uh, Jewish uh, so-called exorcists during this time, these so-called healers, the real healer steps in and without asking anything of the woman at all, without busting out any sort of um, magic uh, phrase, Jesus extends a hand and lifts her to her feet. A fever, it it turns out, is gone in an instant. And not just the fever, but any sense of weakness or need to recover. So much so that it tells us, um, and I think this is just hilarious, this detail. This woman begins fixing supper. Can't you imagine Peter saying to his mother-in-law, Mom, sit, sit, sit down. I can't believe you're okay. You need some rest. To which she says, move aside, Peter. I've got work to do. Can't you see I'm already behind as it is? But while all of this is happening, Jesus has begun to, uh, Jesus, he's begun to, again, gain traction, his reputation. The word begins to spread about this man they've just seen in the synagogue. People begin throughout the day to gather their sick and their suffering loved ones, waiting for the close of the day, the close of Sabbath, importantly, when they can finally venture from their homes and find the healer. And just as soon as sun sets, a flood of people arrive at Peter's door. Can you imagine what this was like for Peter and the other disciples? It says as if, the passage says as if the whole city showed up at their door. They've come for Jesus, the healer. And how does Jesus respond? Not with any sense of irritation. Jesus is so interruptible, isn't he? He rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work. Healing every disease and affliction that comes before him, casting out even more demons, uh, one after another after another, and until it would, we would assume that it became perhaps too dark for him to continue anymore. No matter, the people go home, assuming they can, of course, pick up tomorrow. That's a pretty incredible scene. But before I move on, I want to ask a question that might seem painfully obvious to some. Why did Jesus heal? Why was this such a core component of his ministry? I want to give us a few options. The first we might speculate is, you know, he, 
He was motivated by compassion, wasn't he? And notice that Jesus in this story doesn't seem to have planned the healings in advance other than being the sovereign God in human flesh. He's, he responds immediately to those who are around, them, around him. He is immediately available. His compassion motivates him to respond to the needs that are on his doorstep. You know, I fear so many of us, we're certain that God has no time for us. We're skeptical that we would ever catch God's attention. But at every stage of this story, let alone the stages to come, we see Jesus immediately engage the person in front of them as if they are the most important person in the world. But if compassion was Jesus' only motive, and we would say definitely his compassion motivated him here, why then do we see Jesus spend time doing really anything else? Why doesn't Jesus focus his ministry on uh, raising as many dead people, for that matter? In fact, why do we see Jesus in other places, including the verses that we're about to look at, stop healing? Why does he leave off miracles entirely, as he did in his hometown of Nazareth? If his compassion was his motive, why does he do anything else? Compassion can't be the only motive at play, but perhaps we would speculate, well, maybe it's to show off his power. It's, a pretty, it's perhaps the most common assumption here. Certainly, Jesus' miracles do show off his power. Everything we seem to take for granted in life, everything is, that is, seems to be final, undefeatable, beyond our control, somehow isn't for Jesus. Jesus never seems to reach his limit. Jesus is, you know, he's calming storms, he's casting out demons, he's even rising the dead, healing the blind. Jesus is showing off his power really over everything, every conceivable thing. But if showing off his power was his only motive, then why doesn't Jesus resort to miracles in the wilderness when Satan is going toe-to-toe with him? Why doesn't he show off when the religious leaders doubt the authenticity of his message and they ask him to prove it? Why, most importantly, does this God-man with infinite power choose to die weak and dejected on a Roman cross? Why doesn't he strike down his opponents with a lightning bolt? You might argue, maybe for some combination, of course, Jesus wants to show off both his compassion and his power. I think we're getting closer to the center. In many ways, his miracles do show both of these off. And this gives us remarkable comfort, I have to tell you, in our own suffering, that God is not lacking in any compassion or ability to help. God is of immediate help, friends, to those that he loves. And the hope that we base our lives upon is that God can and will indeed repair everything that is broken about our lives. He is both powerful and he is compassionate. And we need to pray, even plead with God in light of these truths. So uh, some of you know I have Crohn's disease, this chronic condition, and, and it's uh, not as bad as it could be. I know many who have it much worse, but I have to tell you, it frustrates me when people pray for me, offer to pray for me in this chronic condition um, without actually asking God ever to heal. Yes, I have to tell you, please pray for my endurance. Pray that God would work through that suffering that I might put my hope in him rather than my comfort. Yes, please pray for these things. But we must believe that God is not limited in his compassion or his power. 
And we must begin to pray like this, friends. I, I fear, though, that our assumption is, is, sure, he could, but not this time. But I, I think there's an even more central reason to why Jesus heals, why he performs these miracles, and why he heals the sick, casts out demons, and even raises the dead. I'm convinced that Jesus performs these miracles each and every time in order to show off his desire and his ability specifically to save us from an even crueler condition, our bondage and our addiction to sin. His miracles reveal, yes, his desire and ability specifically to save, friends, pulling back the curtain on, yes, the kind of kingdom that he is going to bring. And indeed, this kingdom is going to be free of sorrow, free of sickness, of loss, of cancer, of death, of Alzheimer's. But only because that kingdom, in that kingdom, sin and Satan have been thoroughly defeated. Notice again, chapter 1, verse 15, this kingdom that he proclaims, these miracles are not meant to be an end in themselves. Jesus' purpose isn't simply, I have to tell you, to provide temporary relief to suffering. And isn't that so often that we pray? We just want to—we want temporary relief. We want to control our own circumstances. No, Jesus' purpose is actually so much grander than that. He aims to undo suffering entirely in his kingdom, a kingdom he is calling all of us into. But how is he calling us into it? By repentance and faith. The miracles are actually a passionate appeal from Jesus, not simply to come to him as healer, but to come to him as Savior and Lord. Unfortunately, there are so many so-called Christians today who turn this message upside down. They make Jesus' mission out to be a health wealth and prosperity in this life, arguing that these blessings can be ours if we just have enough faith. It goes by many uh, terms, the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement, whatever it may be. And unfortunately, we have many local leaders who peddle this kind of alternative gospel, a gospel that's more like carbon monoxide than it is oxygen. Ironically, the, this, kind of, this kind of idea that God God's purpose is to unlock for us health, wealth, and prosperity right now. Is only, it only holds water in a culture like ours, which is already so padded in comfort and prosperity. It's only believable in a context like ours. But more importantly, this teaching, here's what it does. It ends up making Jesus out to be a kind of vending machine for us, a means to an end, a way to get what we really want. And I fear many of us, we may not even subscribe to that prosperity gospel, but we still see God this way. We will give God some of our time and attention. We'll, we'll do what he wants, but only so far as he gives us what we want. We may not even realize that this is our posture towards God. Until God doesn't come through as we expect, when our prayers are met with silence or our obedience is met with loss, and we find ourselves confused and angry, don't you owe me, God? This leads to the second half of our passage, Jesus the preacher. It's remarkable. Jesus just had what we could call an exhausting day. I mean, 
staying up late into the night, healing person after person, encountering sick person after sick person after sick person. I mean, take the morning, Jesus. And yet, Jesus seems to have the opposite kind of impulse. Verse 35, it doesn't tell us an exact time, but it tells us it was very early, still dark, in fact, probably four in the morning before anyone else in the house is up, that Jesus rises with one thing on his mind. He is headed out of town to pray. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus understands the most important thing he could do after a day like the one we have just described is to spend time in prayer? But there's something else, actually, that I want us to notice, and it's, I think John Mark wants us to as well, and it's not just what Jesus is doing, it's where Jesus is going. Do you notice this phrase in here? To a desolate place. John doesn't give us that detail just for kicks and giggles, for us to have, you know, another uh, detail to log away into our brains. This ESV calls a desolate place here. It's the same word actually used previously in Mark for where John preached in the wilderness and where Jesus was tempted by Satan. Why would John tell us this? Can I nerd out with you for a second? Maybe you're not going to find this as interesting as I do, but... The wilderness is a, has massive significance in the Bible. It becomes a kind of symbol, a metaphor for us. And I realize some of us might view the wilderness with some sense of excitement. Um, I was a Boy Scout in Colorado, and some of my uh, fondest memories are of uh, backpacking through the wilderness of the Rocky Mountains. You didn't do that in this time. The ancient times, uh, wilderness was viewed with fear. The wilderness was a place where nothing would grow, a place where criminals would go to retreat and plot, a place where humans just could not last, and where only wild animals could live. In Israelite culture even, the wilderness was seen as a cursed place, a place where only demons and dark spiritual forces lived. The wilderness was a place that you avoided, a place of horror, a place of loneliness, a place of danger. Even so, the wilderness played a crucial role in Israel's history. The more we read, following their rescue from Egypt, when they were led again famously through uh, the ten plagues and across the Red Sea, where did God lead them but into the wilderness? The wilderness was where they first became a nation, in fact. The wilderness was a place where they were sustained day after day by the, the miraculous provision of God. A place where bread fell from the sky and water burst from rocks in the desert. A place where for 40 years they were led and sustained, not by their own hand at all, but by the hand of the Almighty God. The wilderness was a place where they actually, because of it being such a barren and dangerous place, they learned dependence on God. After all, this in this, uh, such a barren place, what, where else could they turn? What else would they rely upon? And putting this all together, the wilderness was a place where only God could sustain, but in the wilderness was a place where fellowship with him was renewed, where he became the only thing that was depended upon, and that dependence became full of joy and full of eagerness. But then notice the timing of this all then. Jesus retreats to the wilderness just as his reputation begins to take off. Why? This seems interruptive. It seems to throw off uh, um, strategic timelines, doesn't it? It says if Jesus, though, sees in the crowds a temptation to success, 
a, success, a, a, a seduction of a kind in the clamoring multitude. It's as if Jesus leaves all of that deliberately behind him in Capernaum. Jesus' footsteps into the wilderness are actually preaching at us, friends. You see, Jesus will not be swayed by applause. He will not be swayed even by the crowd's most felt needs. What did they want? They wanted to be healed. Jesus answers to the Father. The Father provides both the source and the power for Jesus' work, and Jesus will only do what his Father commands. So Jesus goes to the wilderness to refocus his mission, to refocus his dependence, and the one who commissioned that mission in the first place. How many of us, if we were caught up in success and newfound popularity, would do the same? This is where we can begin to see, I think, just how frustrating Jesus would have been to his disciples. Can you imagine it? I mean, Peter wakes early, but not early enough, and gearing up for another red-letter day of the ministry, only Jesus is nowhere to be found in the house. Perhaps, again, as the morning progresses, he's hoping and checking the sun, wondering when is Jesus going to arrive, and the crowds begin to show up on his doorstep, and still no Jesus. I mean, can you imagine Peter's panic? Uh, so he spearheads a search party. Uh, he, he, uh, he, who, knows, who knows, after all, how many hours he spends with the disciples um, before they find him. Who knows where they would have searched before they look for him in all places in the wilderness. You can almost hear the exasperation in their voice. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. In other words, what in the world are you doing here? Again, the, G- the disciples, they, they have one thing on their mind to get Jesus back to Capernaum. The people are waiting. The, there's work to be done. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Verse 38. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I might preach there also. For that is why I came out. The next towns as in not this town, the town where he was presently needed and where the crowds had gathered. What is going on, Jesus? Don't you realize, again, that there are people who need you, people who are waiting for you to show up? But the the next part is even more confusing, isn't it? It might make more sense if he said, let us go into the next towns that I might heal there also. But what does he say? That I might preach. It's one of those moments that I wish we had had more details um, about how the disciples responded. It sounds so simple. It just moves on from there. And he went all throughout Galilee. Surely the disciples had something to say about this preach. I mean, are you serious? Friends, this is where we get to really the heart of the passage, though. You see, even as Jesus has the compassion and power to heal, and we need to say so emphatically, to fix the problems that have you lying awake at night. There is something we need more. More than a stable bank account. More than a happy marriage. More than relief from chronic pain. More than self-esteem or someone to keep me warm at night. We need God himself. It's as if the healings here are not the main point. It's as if they only give credibility to the message that Jesus was preaching. It's as if they were pulling back the curtain on the new world. 
that his gospel would bring and calling them, more importantly, beyond the miracles to the greater kingdom by repentance and faith. I appreciate how Tim Lane and Paul Tripp have put it. Jesus is not a vending machine that dispenses what we want to feel good about ourselves. He is the Holy One who comes to cleanse, fill us, and change us. He does this not according to our agendas. He will not serve our wayward needs. He loves us too much to merely make us happy. He comes to make us holy. Friends, God may choose to heal. He may choose to restore. He may choose to provide as we have asked. But when he does, he does so as a mercy to us. And he does so in order to call us to hope in something even greater than what he has provided. He has called, he's given us a small happiness, but not as an end in itself, rather as an appetizer of things to come, a signpost that he has something even better in store because he has addressed an even deeper need, our greatest need in the cross. But to wake up to this greater need, I have to tell you sometimes, Like here, we need God to disrupt our agendas. Sometimes we need God to say no. How do you think the the crowds responded when Jesus didn't show? Do you think they still followed him when he didn't come through as they expected? Would you still take God if you knew your relief would never come, at least on this side of eternity? Would you still want God if, in fact, he only made your life more difficult? Made you care about things that you never cared about before? Stirred up conflict in your most basic relationships? Called you even to die to the very desires, plans, and ambitions that once ruled your life? Would you still take God if he called you not into triumph and success, but to loss, even death? To put this bluntly, if you consider yourself a Christian, and I hope I hear this as well, are you in this to have God or simply to have God's stuff? Is your hope in the gift or in the giver? Thinking back to the man that I mentioned at the beginning of this message on the surface, my friend, you see, he, had, he appeared to have a renewed interest in the Bible, a clear desire to know and follow God. He could even summarize the basic news of what Jesus had accomplished in his death and resurrection. And in our conversation, I affirmed so many of these things. But I also asked him, what if God chooses not to heal you as you expect? Certainly God has the power to heal, and the hope of Christianity is that one day everything sad will be made untrue. But in the meantime, what if God chooses to wait? Is he enough for you? It turns out this was the very last conversation we had. And despite weeks of pursuit afterwards, I never heard from him again. I can't tell you how much that broke my heart. The thing is, so long as something other than God is more desirable to us than God himself, we will never have 
the intimate relationship with him that we long for. Jesus knows this. Jesus preached this. But most importantly, Jesus reversed this. How? Not by flashy displays of power. But by once more leaving the city. But this time with a cross on his shoulders. This time without the sustaining comfort of his father's presence. This time he went out weakened and alone. The healer of the body had his own body broken. The defeater of demons became the scorn of Satan. And it is Jesus' weakness in death that brought us the power of the kingdom. But we can only experience this kingdom if we confess that God is the most desirable thing as we locate our hopes not in the stuff that we hope for right now, but in God himself. This is the essence of repentance and faith. This is the Christian's ongoing journey. This is what your pastor is working for on a day-to-day basis because I hope in this stuff and not in him. He is calling us to into the wilderness to leave behind all that we might have our hopes latched upon in order to have him. And it turns out the only thing that will make us willing to do so, to know that he will not leave us on our own, in the end, the only thing that can cause us to open our hands is to behold the gospel. I want you to listen to these words from a hymn that we're going to learn in these coming weeks, and these are so carefully chosen. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Following Jesus, friends, into his kingdom will mean taking up our cross, but only as we see the one who bore it first. Following Jesus into his kingdom will mean us wondering in awe, not only at that kingdom, but what the king has endured to win it. Would you pray with me as we close our service this morning? Lord, we, we do want to see with clarity your kingdom. Oh, we want to hope in it. Would you come now, even now, Lord Jesus? We need this reign of justice and peace and end to our suffering and sin. But more importantly, we want to see the, the king who is the center of our desire. He is the hope of heaven. He is the hope of heaven. Reveal to us where we have preferred other things to you, where we have made you our means to an end. We know that you will not tolerate that. But you know us so well, and you've given us the gospel, not only as what saves us, but is saving us from our stubborn idolatry. Loosen our grip that we might grip you. We pray also for endurance where you say no, and you frustrate our ambitions, and where you leave unanswered questions. Where we say in the end, he gives and he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We pray all these things because of the hope that has been accomplished in Jesus Christ and it is coming to us in his kingdom. 
For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.